You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining us on our new episode of the Tech Tank Podcast. And today we are talking COVID vaccine passports. There's a nationwide rollout of the COVID vaccine and Americans are coming closer to regaining some normalcy over the early summer months. But there's a Delta variant that has hit and it's a strain that is 200% more transmissible than the original coronavirus. We're back at it again with COVID death rates on the rise again, or at least those who are getting ill, primarily the unvaccinated, which is making it even more important for this new documentation that people are asked to actually show, which is the vaccine passport, or some have referred to it as a digital vaccine passport. It's now more important for employers, for schools, for public venues, And in places like France, President Macron has announced that proof of health vaccination will be required to enter public spaces. And that's not come along too easy. We've seen a lot of protests there. Today's conversation is really going to dive into vaccine passports. Are they opportunities to get this virus under control? Or are they perilous because they have implications for privacy, civil rights, and potentially choice. I'm excited that we have a group of experts that are joining me today. And this topic, I think, is going to be one that is going to stick around for quite some time. Our guests include Mark Hall, the Fred D. and Elizabeth L. Turnage Professor of Law at Wake Forest University and Director of the Health Law and Policy Program. He is also a non-resident fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. Jay Stanley, Senior Policy Analyst at the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. And Emily Scahill, who's the co-author of Vaccine Passports Underscore the Necessity of U.S. Privacy Legislation, a summer research intern, my co-author on that blog in the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Thank you all for joining me. Good to be here. Great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I want to start, Emily, with you. It's becoming clear that with vaccination rates on the rise in several countries and across the U.S., many places are relaxing public health restrictions and moving towards a full reopening. We're seeing this with movie theaters, baseball stadiums, concert venues, which are opening to full capacity. And Biden, he's announced that there's not going to be a centralized vaccine database in the United States, which has created the space for private entities to independently develop vaccine passports and other relevant apps. Now, Emily, you and Samantha Lay and I have actually co-authored a piece on this at Brookings. Let's do some level setting because I know you took a lot of time to research why we have had health vaccination records in the first place and whether we should be surprised by this growing trend of requiring some type of proof of immunization. Yeah, thank you, Nicole, for having me on the podcast today to talk about this really important topic. So to jump right in, Health certificates, which a lot of people more commonly know in the United States as vaccine passports, have actually had a really long history in the United States and around the world in protecting global health security. You can look back to the 1880s when many public schools in the U.S. 
actually required both students and teachers to present paper certificates to prove that they had been vaccinated against the smallpox. And then if you fast forward to 1959, the World Health Organization had developed this thing called the Yellow Card, and that was a standardized vaccine passport for international travel. So health certificates are nothing new. They've played a role in protecting global health for um, some time now. But with COVID-19, as we're starting to relax public health restrictions and are trying to determine whether proof of vaccination is needed to enter a school, for instance, or a workplace or a restaurant or for international travel. Vaccine passports have really become a hot button issue, both in the United States and abroad. And this is for probably a couple of reasons. One is that we now have both the technology and the capability to make vaccine passports digital. And in many ways, that's a beneficial development because it makes vaccine verification more efficient and more secure. But at the same time, it raises a lot of questions around privacy and equity that I'm sure we'll get to later in this episode. But those are really valid questions that we need to ask about whether digital vaccine certificates are excluding or disadvantaging vulnerable populations. And then second, the rampant spread of misinformation through social media and the rise of populist movements that are defined by hostility toward government intervention have really led to a mischaracterization of vaccine passports. Which brings me to my third point, which is that the term vaccine passport is rather misleading because it implies that the federal government holds sensitive personal vaccine information on all of us. And at least in the United States, that's not really true. Vaccination records are actually held at the local and state level. And as you mentioned, the Biden administration has made very clear from the beginning that it will not be collecting vaccination records at the federal level. And so that's one reason that I like to use the term digital health certificate rather than vaccine passport, because I just think it's a better descriptor of what we're actually talking about. So I think as we're we're talking about digital vaccine passports today, it's important not only to look at the issues they raise around privacy and equity, but also the language that we're using to talk about them and how that kind of affects the contours of public opinion surrounding vaccine verification. Emily, thank you so much for that description. Now you all could tell why we are co-authors in this and why that blog is doing relatively well. Mark, you know, what Emily is talking about, this is not something new to America, and we're obviously seeing this in other countries. I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about the vaccine passport programs that other countries have. How are they different, similar to the U.S.? And is there any international coordination? Because it appears that we're all doing this trial by fire, which may or may not be a good idea. Sure, Nicole. There is a lot going on internationally, and it is proving to be controversial. England was one of the leaders in looking into this issue and produced a lot of debate. Israel was the first country to actively embrace the idea because it quickly reached the highest vaccination rate of any significant country in in the world. And so they've adopted, I forget the terminology, perhaps a green pass or something like that. But just here in the last week, we're reading that Europe is now making the vaccine passport universal across the the, uh, European Union as a means to facilitate and, uh, as you mentioned at the outset, particular countries, then once this credential is established, can add on to the cross-border conditions that the European Union sets more localized uh, conditions and the potential to use passports or health certificates to regulate entry into various kinds of businesses or activities is established once you create the certificate for uh, transportation purposes. So the issues percolated for a while with a lot of debate. I think the Delta variant and the 
need to reimpose travel restrictions they're starting to just emerge from, I think, brought to fore the utility of this idea, but also heightened concern about some of the drawbacks. I like what you're framing there. We're having some of the same challenges, I think, that other countries are having as well. And I do think that it does implicate us on some of our civil rights laws. When I start to think about the requirement of having a vaccine passport, I'm sorry, Emily, or health certificate, right, in hand to be able to enter just everyday venues. Jay, you're at the ACLU. There's a lack of federal legislation on privacy. There's in the news challenges with technology applications to everyday functions in our society. Are these things covered under modern day civil rights laws? What protections are we putting in place? If I've got to show my vaccine passport to be able to register for school and I'm one of those people that doesn't necessarily want to take it, I know there's been some waivers, but talk to us a little bit about what do consumers have to lose or be concerned about with these documents and what specific populations will be most affected? Yeah, so I think, first of all, you guys made a really good point in your blog post that the lack of an overarching, strong federal privacy law is really hurting things here. And it just goes to show that when you don't have good privacy fundamentals, then you can't do a lot of things because there's a lack of trust in the basics. And it would make it much easier in this area, as in so many, if we had some ground rules on privacy. One of the problems is that there are a lot surprisingly number high number of people in our society who don't have smartphones including many from our most vulnerable communities studies have found more than 40 percent over of people over age 65 don't have a smartphone 25 percent of people who make less than thirty thousand a year people with disabilities and the homeless are also less likely to own one and so if you key the if you make it crucial to have a smartphone to do the very basics of society then that will have tremendous inequitable impacts. And then there are also the privacy issues, which could affect everybody, although typically privacy issues do hurt the most vulnerable people the hardest. And the concern that we have there as privacy advocates is that this is creating an infrastructure for basically a digital identity and authentication system. And that kind of a digital identification system can be a good thing in terms of convenience and even in some cases protecting privacy. For example, if you have to show your driver's license to somebody at a bar, they, you can just prove to them that you're over 21 without having to show them your actual birth date or any of the other information that could be good. But if it's done badly on privacy, it could become a real tracking mechanism where every time you show your credential, somebody at, the, at a company or a government agency gets to see everywhere you go. And so if we're going to have some sort of a digital credential authentication system, it needs to be best of breed for privacy. It needs to be ironclad, privacy protected. And so a lot of the concern around digital vaccine certificates is that it will not be good. It will not be architected in ways that protect privacy well. And then it will become a standard. First, it's your COVID vaccine, then it's your other vaccines, maybe other health records. And the next thing you know, everything is in there, including your driver's license your gym membership, and so on. And it becomes a locked-in standard nationally and one that is bad for privacy. And so that is one of the big concerns among privacy advocates behind the digital vaccine passport. I want to stop for just a second because I think we've used three separate terms, people, for this. (laughs) We've used (laughs) passport, certificate, health record. Is there one right answer or for the purpose of this conversation, should we stick with certificate or passport? Emily, I'm going to start with you first. Is is there one right way to say this? Because I think going back to Jay's point, 
if we don't know exactly what's the, the, the is right in terms of what we're telling people to carry, is that also going to cause some consumer confusion? I think that's the point exactly is that a lot of the misinformation around vaccine passports or digital health certificates really contributes to this consumer confusion. And so that's why I was trying to stick with the default like health certificate. But I also find myself rather frequently using the term vaccine passport because I think it's something that people are more likely to understand. Jay, what do you think? I think there's also an important distinction here, which is between proof of vaccination and a digital vaccine certificate. We've had, as Emily said, we've had proof of vaccination since the 1800s. A digital vaccine passport is a much different thing. And I think that the issues around a digital vaccine passport often get mixed in with the issues around when should people have to prove that they've been vaccinated, which is a completely set of policy issues opposed to like, how should we architect a digital, if at all, a digital vaccine authentication passport, whatever you want to call it, system. Yeah, I like that. And Mark, I'm gonna let you chime in as well. And then I have another question for you. I mean, passport certificate, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, I have been using the term passport just because it provokes conversation. And so as an academic, I like that. But in terms of implementing policy, I think that Emily and Jay are absolutely right. We need to be very clear between uh, about the distinction between simply verifying information in an accurate and privacy protected way. And then the policy that attaches to that information, which is when is that verification required or what does that verification entitle you to? So passport seems to connote both, be used to verify, and it seems to connote that you must have this information in order to pass through. And that's not necessarily the case. The government can play a role that facilitates the verification piece, but leaves it entirely to private enterprise and initiative and preference when the credential is needed or what it can be used for, or or government can support the verification piece and set limits. So I think those are critical distinctions to having an informed discussion. And and I agree that starting with the simplest term certificate is probably the best. And it brings up a question, and I'll throw it to you first, Mark, uh, and then I'll go to Jay, which is this whole idea of authenticating your identity. And I don't consider myself to be too much in age, but I do remember apartheid. And other systems of oppression where people had to authenticate their freedom. Blacks in the early parts of slavery had to carry their freedom papers to be able to move through society um, as a freed person. There's so many things about this on the racial and social equity sides that really frightens me. When we think about where we're going to have challenges with the full implementation of a vaccine passport program or vaccine certificate program, where are we going to address the racial disparities that exist, particularly when we see that African-Americans in particular have been very hesitant to get the vaccine? Is this going to be something where they can't show proof they can't work? I just want to talk a little bit about that. So, Mark, I'll start with you, and then I'll go to you, Jay, and then Emma, if you want to chime in. How should we be centering equity at the heart of this conversation? Because I really do think that we're assuming that we've got full-fledged vaccination participation, and that's not often the case. Critical question, Nicole, and and I'm glad we got to it early in the conversation. And and like many issues around COVID in general, but around equity issues in particular, very difficult to have a clean, clear-cut answer. I, I think the idea that Because there's a concern about this, we should prohibit the idea is overreacting. I think the the right approach is to be very aware and focused on these concerns and how they might be minimized. So 
One point I want to make is we've been talking about vaccination credentials, but I think we should be talking about, as Emily said, health certification, and that could include immunity that's acquired through recovery from infection. Uh, And so the European Union certification includes vaccination, recovery from disease, and recent testing, any of those three. Of course, the recent testing is only valid for 72 hours and maybe recovery from infection Science will tell us, is that good for three months or six months? And maybe the vaccination is good. for So there might be time limitations that affect these differently. But the idea that only vaccination should count is, I think, one way to deal with that issue and remind ourselves that at the same time that more disadvantaged populations uh, may be more, more reluctant to be vaccinated, they are actually the ones that suffered the highest rate of infection. And so having su- suffered the sort of the largest sort of brunt of the burden of the initial disease. And if, in fact, science shows that having recovered, they are much safer. I think this kind of certification initiative could help enhance freedoms and opportunities for folks who have been more disadvantaged by the disease aspect and, and might create a kind of a counterbalancing valence to, to what we're doing. Yeah, that's interesting. There are significant equity issues here. We know that Black people and other people of color have less trust in major government institutions and in health institutions in particular, and that mistrust is well-founded historically, going back to things such as the Tuskegee experiments. And there are also significant, there remain significant barriers to vaccination for underprivileged people, including simply geography and the opportunity to get vaccinated because you're holding two jobs and you have kids and it's often just not that easy. And the I think that communities need to work on increasing vaccination in all populations. But when you start to set up a, and I will call it here, a vaccine passport system in which you are allowed to come or go, depending on whether you have this certification, that raises the stakes for those other issues because the consequences of the failure to equitably distribute the vaccine become magnified because now not only are you lacking a vaccine, but now it's having other implications for your life if you can't get on the subway, you can't get into your grocery store, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that those are things that need to be considered very carefully as we as a society proceed with these kinds of systems. Yeah, and I think, and Emily, I want to drop in because I think also what's happening, Jay and Mark and Emily, is we're starting to hear this language, the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. And I think there are implications in even how we're framing the differences between the two. And some of it, Jay, to your point, could be supply versus demand and choice. Emily, how do we begin to normalize equity in these conversations? Or is this that space where we may have to say that universities, bowling alleys, you can't necessarily mandate this thing? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think the base of that discussion is looking at supply and demand. And when demand outstrips supply in terms of being able to get vaccinated, I don't know that it's necessarily ethical to condition access to public spaces on proof of vaccination. And that goes to some points that both Jay and Mark made about the possibility to create a two-tiered society here if vaccine distribution isn't equitable at that point in time. I think the real policy debate should be centered on when vaccine supply either meets or exceeds demands. And then you're looking at questions of fairness. So is it fair to condition access to public spaces on vaccine verification for people who are 
maybe simply choosing not to get the vaccine? And does that cause them to bear some responsibility for not getting vaccinated and maybe incentivize them to do so? But then you also have questions around people who can't get the vaccine because they have either health issues or maybe religious objections or have well-founded reasons to mistrust the public health system because they've been historically disadvantaged by it. And so I think that's where the real policy debate occurs. And I think that I said that there are separate issues between the question about when can people be forced to prove that they've been vaccinated versus creating a digital vaccine pass. But they are related in the sense that if you create a digital vaccine certificate that makes it very easy to prove that you've been vaccinated and therefore easy to ask people to prove that they've been vaccinated, you get an encouragement of, of overuse. If you have to present a physical piece of paper, you're likely to be asked less. But if you can just whip out your phone and in one second prove that you've been vaccinated, now it's that much easier for subway systems, mass transit systems, grocery stores, et cetera, et cetera, to start doing that. And there is a risk of overuse. Yeah, you're getting into that space, Jay, that I'm actually working on my book now um, on the digital divide, which is the extent to which people actually walk around with the type of access they need to actually deliver those kinds of results. I think that's going to get a whole nother podcast, right, that we'll bring in. But I do like what you're talking about because it also brings back this implication of privacy. And with the lack of any kind of federal privacy legislation, to your point, it not only becomes overused, but at some point it, it intrudes, like you said, with other parts of your life. So now you're not only sharing your vaccine status, but you may also be sharing your driver's license or you may have to share your GPA because all those things are tethered together. Mark, what do you think about that in terms of just the lack of privacy? We know certain data is protected by HIPAA, but does that mean that these things are going to be protected under the health privacy laws or do we need a set of comprehensive privacy laws? I'm sure we could benefit from uh, comprehensive privacy law, but my sense is that the privacy protections are pretty strong in the healthcare arena. I'm not nearly the expert on those issues that you are. I haven't formulated a set of topics or talking points about what needs to be improved or not. I, I think all these things need to be addressed with a certain eye towards balance and trade-offs. And frequently in these conversations, find myself on the side of making the other point. I see issues on both sides, but I, I want to come back to, in general, in this conversation, emphasizing you know, how these certificates might be beneficial, starting with the observation that we live in a world where a lot of our fundamental freedoms uh, are being affected by COVID public health restriction. And as the conditions for infection and spread wax and wane, we see those restrictions uh, increase and, and recede. Now, we could be in a world where we're just in complete lockdown until the COVID uh, virus is completely gone and, and then resume full activities, but we're not in that world. The Delta variant becomes uh, more active or uh, risks become more widespread. But we're reminded that we have a choice between uniform, non-differentiated restrictions that require everybody to stay home or not travel or wear a mask or do whatever, or restrictions that are calibrated to, to actual levels of risk and in a way that's well-informed. And I think there's important civil rights and individual rights issues at stake there that help put into perspective or create a balance about the concerns about privacy and discrimination that have been raised. And just to note a couple of examples that come to mind, there are certain activities or events that just couldn't happen unless we had reasonable protections in place. And 
some of those protections can be pretty onerous. So requiring travelers to quarantine for 14 days, I think Paul said you're about to head off to vacation to Hawaii. And Hawaii was very strict because it's an island that they could protect themselves without quarantining. But once you have effective vaccines, does it really make sense to quarantine all you know, travelers to Hawaii? It'd be nice to have a vacation. Or my wife practices yoga. And is it wrong for her yoga studio to say, we'll have classes that are restricted to vaccinated people? It doesn't strike me as... <laughs> A huge infringement of, of that sort of thing. And I was just reading a factoid the other day that Fox News, who rails against some of the commentators uh, against both mask wearing and, and vaccination internally for its own employees, says, but if you return to work, you're required to wear a mask unless you can show you've been vaccinated. <laughs> and so it makes perfect sense. But it's if those people are seeing this, there's, there, there has to be some something in it for the rest of us. Yeah. And it's so interesting, Mark, the way you say it, because I think that's why we wanted to have this conversation as part of this podcast. And for the people who are listening, I mean, the same type of questions that we're asking, I'm sure that you're asking the same thing. It reminds me, Emily, of this health record. When my kids have to go back to school, I literally have to take them to the pediatrician and I have to generate that health record just to ensure that they can have proof that they have been vaccinated against things like smallpox or chickenpox and things like that. Are we going to eventually, Emily, see the COVID vaccine immunization show up on that health record? Are we just in a temporary gap stop? right? Where we got to do this right now until we can get most people herd immunity. Where do you think this is going to land up based on your argument around the health record? I think that's a really good question. So in both schools and in some employment cases, there's already requirements that you need to show proof of vaccination. Just to go to college, I had to show all these records to prove that I'd been vaccinated against different diseases. So in that sense, maybe it will become part of a standardized vaccine record or passport. But I think in terms of conditioning access to restaurants or gyms and other similar public spaces, there's so much controversy around the idea of vaccine passports in the United States that I don't necessarily see the vaccine passport having much of a life after COVID-19. But I think it's important to think about vaccine passports in preparation for the next pandemic, whenever that is. It might not be in our lifetimes or it might be five years from now. And it's important to really consider the ethical issues around vaccine passports now while we have the time to do that. Jay, what do you think? Is this something that should be institutionalized at some point so we can remove some of the residual effect of potential civil and human rights biases or the fact that this could be bigger than a bigger societal debacle of these tales of two cities? Yeah, I think that if a digital vaccine certificate system is going to be developed at any point, it needs to be done very carefully and it needs to be done right with best of field privacy practices that can allow us to have our cake and eat it too, to show our vaccine status easily and to do so in a way that is secure, but in a way that is privacy protected. And for example, doesn't report back to a centralized authority every time you show it. If I were a betting man, I would say that this is not going to happen anytime soon, but a digital system, it's a Herculean task to create. You need to create an app for those who deliver vaccines. To, to produce the vaccine certificate, you need to create an app for those who are holders of the vaccine certificate. You need to create an app for the readers. Those apps have to be tested over a process that major app makers will do over a year normally, or you, I guess you could rush it, but then it's going to be buggy. And then you have to get 
universal uptake so that everybody is on the same page when it comes to having all these apps that all interread with each other and so forth. And the Washington Post had 16 different initiatives to do this and how are we going to settle on one? And given the American people's anti-authoritarian resistance to these kinds of mandates, and the number of something like 16 states have banned vaccine mandates, I just don't see this happening this time around. As Emily said, it could be something that is developed over time in preparation for another potential future hypothetical pandemic. But I think there is also a question around what is the advantages of a digital system as opposed to the paper system that we've been using for 100 years, 140 years, whatever it is. It is true that you can forge paper items in a way that can be made very difficult with digitally signed certificates. But it's not that easy to forge something. Most people aren't going to get off their duffs and go get something forged. It, the FBI has warned they could be a federal crime to forge your CDC passes. So that's something people have to worry about. And how many people are going to actually create forged certificates in a system that's already less than perfect? For example, the EU is allowing you to put your test results in there. Well, test results can be out of date from five seconds after you take the test. So that's an imperfect system already. And so in an, in an imperfect world, what are the advantages of creating a digital system as opposed to the old-fashioned, rigorous paper system that we've always had? And so I think that's a question that people should think about, too, and not just assume that digital is better. There are areas, for example, voting machines, where digital is not only not better, it's much worse. Mark, did you want to comment on this topic? Yeah, I do. I think Jay is really on the money there. Digital is fine as an option, but I in normal times, just travel on the airplane. I can print my boarding pass on paper or I can put it on my nifty iPhone. <laughs> Something that says that you can only get on an airplane if you've got an iPhone just, just is, as Jay says, it's come on starter. But and I also want to point to this concept in terms of people who just don't like the notion of vaccine certification. They'll raise a variety of concerns, many of which are legitimate. The one of forgery, I, I, I think, is uh, make weight red herring or something. And yes, forgery can happen, but therefore we don't have driver's license. I mean, who hasn't had a fake ID or what have you? So we learn to get through life despite the risk of forgery. It just seems like the kind of thing that uh, shouldn't force into us into a corner or a box. It's funny you all are talking about forgery. I don't know if you read the story about the man in India that dressed up like his wife and used her document or her COVID test result to fly wherever he was going. And he went into the bathroom to take off his wife's clothing, to put on his own clothing. And then that's when they figured out he wasn't his wife. I just looked at that story the other day. And this is true. I think there's going to be a whole lot of challenges when it comes to detecting real identity or authenticating results or even paperwork. There are so many things that we could do in terms of manipulation that and, and the misinformation that's even related to the vaccine itself. It's going to be interesting going forward. Emily, you made this point that most private companies have the data, right? The federal government is not even at the center of this. They just are pushing people to get vaccinated. Private companies were the places that really stepped up and took the information in when people came in. What is it that we should be doing to give good guidance to private companies so that they can also be part of the solution and not the problem? I think that's where federal privacy legislation really comes in and can be an enabler of innovation around things like vaccine passports that, like Mark said, have the potential to be really impactful tools for protecting public health, but also carry significant privacy and civil liberties risks. And especially in the hands of private companies, that's where federal privacy legislation is, I think, 
probably the most important in order to make sure that vaccine passports don't become an apparatus for either government spying or surveillance capitalism, and that we're accounting for kind of the disparate impacts of vaccine passports on historically disadvantaged communities. And and I think that not only provides innovators in this space with kind of the confidence that they have a common set of norms and values and standards that they're adhering to, but it also creates more public trust that any sort of vaccine passport that is created is something that abides by these certain standards. So Jay, coming off of what Emily said, are there additional measures that the government should be taking to ensure that we can reduce potentially some of these harms that may come out of this? I think that the role that the government can play is actually as a protector of privacy. Everybody was worried that there would be some sort of giant centralized database that would come out of this COVID passport idea and that it would be privacy violated and what have you. But there's no reason that as the private sector moves forward with various proposals for this, that the government couldn't use its authority, whether it's formal authorities or more likely just its job owning authority, as they used to call it, where they just get companies together in a room and push hard for systems that are very, very, very privacy protective and to protect the American people from systems, not only systems that would be privacy violated, but also systems that would raise serious equity issues, such as systems that require possession of a smartphone. So that's a role I'd love to see the the government play. Oh, I I love how you're putting that out there. I I see a piece coming out of there for a new blog (laughs) because that is so true. Mark, just because we all download our boarding passes to our phone doesn't mean that we feel we're required to do so. My mother can still print our boarding pass at home. She doesn't necessarily have to have a download on her phone. Mark, I want you to respond to government's role, but this also brings up the role that consumers have to play in this. We often think that these systems are just at the top and not necessarily have any control from consumers themselves or citizens themselves. Talk to me a little bit about what you think the government should be doing to make this fair. But then also, what should citizens be doing, right? For people who are listening, that we make sure that we're also harnessing our own power in this. That's a great question, Nicole, about the citizen. And I, frankly, it's as soon as you ask it, I thought, oh, that's something I need to give more thought to. So let me go to the one I have thought about and the role of government. And I, I really agree down the line with what Jay and Emily said in terms of the government setting safeguards or guard railings. That's the phrase I used before, just things to keep measures to keep things in bounds in order that more through private initiative or individual preference or even different states uh, adopting different arenas that we have, we could have different policies for schools and jobs and essential workers and colleges and secondary and all the rest. So without government setting all that, creating the arena in which those issues can be worked out. And in some ways, I think HIPAA itself is a good example of of something effective. HIPAA, the privacy part of HIPAA, was put into place in order to help facilitate electronic transactions and medical information, the billing and and electronic medical records and things like that. HIPAA was not because we had this massive problem of medical privacy, if we have a clear set of standardized rules that are uniform, that will create, lay the groundwork and create an environment in which it's uh, safer and more trusted to maximize the potential of electronic uh, medical data. And so I think we can think about this in in the same kind of way. In terms of consumer role, that I think really requires some more thought. But I I, I do think there's a role for people to say, I'd like to be able to show you that I've been vaccinated. (laughs) I'd like to know that the other people are around me have been vaccinated. Maybe people are comfortable with just take my word for it. So far they are actually. Uh, All my interactions 
on this issue. I, I take people's word for it and they take mine and that might work just fine. And, and this issue would dissipate to some extent. But I, I think that as citizens and consumers, we can say, well, there's certain arenas where we really like getting on an airplane or something. And I don't want to take everyone's word for it. So um, that I think that's one role we can play. Yeah, these are really hard questions. I was just sitting here thinking, especially given the president was on TV yesterday doing his town hall. And, you know, I'm just thinking about the way that we're, again, referring to people to be vaccinated or not, to carry a passport or not. You know, I think the real question that we were trying to get at in this podcast is to be able to walk freely as a citizen or not. And I think it's that third question that is going to be most problematic if we don't get this right. I want to keep talking, but I can't because I got to let you all go back on your day. But I think that this has been such an important conversation around how we're going to manage this mitigation of the virus really as we try to get out of this. And how, I think, Mark, you said it, how we're going to take the word of our fellow brethren that they've been vaccinated or not, and whether or not we're also going to keep ourselves safe. And we're seeing, and it's such an unfortunate circumstance, I was reading today that people who are sitting under a ventilator just asking for the vaccine because they chose not to. Whether you choose to actually get vaccinated or not is your personal choice. The question is whether you have the ability to do the same things that you were doing prior to the pandemic is one of a human or civil rights issue. And we've got to continue having that conversation. Emily, Mark, and Jay, thank you for lending your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, vaccine passports are going to be a conversation, I think, in the news for quite some time. We're going to hear about it here in the United States as well as across the country. And it's just important for us to keep recognizing, I think a key theme of this was maintaining people's privacy and basic rights in the meantime. Emily, I'm going to plug our blog that we put out. If you want to know more about what Emily wrote about, they can find her at Brookings and that great blog that she put out. Jay is at the ACLU and Mark is on our Brookings website in addition to the work that he's doing at Wake Forest. Thank you again for listening. This is Tech Tank, where we take big bites of information and we make them into bits so that you can have a refreshing conversation around tech in a way that it's digestible and palatable. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, the director of the Center for Technology Innovation, and I will catch you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast. And sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.